Take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 John chapter 2. That song is a great segue into exactly what we're going to talk about this morning, uh, or really exactly what we're going to talk about, how to prevent what we're going to talk about this morning. 1 John chapter 2, almost near the end of the Bible, we have 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. So 1 John chapter 2. You know, we're going to read this passage in just a second, and, and, and maybe find a bookmark, or if you have a ribbon in your Bible, put it there in 1 John chapter 2, because I have a couple other places that I want to take you this morning as part of our introduction, but we're going to come back to 1 John and kind of focus on that this morning. But one of the biggest problems, I think, among Christians today is the problem that's addressed in this passage, and that is worldliness. 1 John chapter 2, in verse number 15, says this. Love not the world. This is a command, by the way. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever." So many people are being drawn away from God to follow after the things of the world. And it's destroying more lives by the day. I'm going to tell you where a desire to follow the world starts, and that is in a lack of holiness. I'm not going to preach on holiness this morning, but a good dose, a simple cure for worldliness is a good dose of holiness. If we would, like he's saying, sit at the feet of Jesus, the worldliness would just go away. We wouldn't have to worry about that. But we get pulled in so many different directions, and of course, the devil is the mastermind behind all of those things. He's going to try to pull us away from the things. He's going to try to get us distracted from the things of God. He's going to try to keep our minds focused on things that are so much less important than our relationship with God so that we won't focus on holiness, so that we won't focus on sitting at the feet of Jesus. If we become concerned, though, about being holy and about just being right with God, then we're going to naturally abhor the world, and we're going to love the things of God. That's just a natural reaction of sitting at the feet of Jesus. We're not going to love the world. We're not going to follow after the world. Now, before we go any farther, I feel like it's necessary to define what I mean by worldliness. The Bible says, love not the world. He's not talking about the, the physical creation. God's not speaking about the physical world. God made, everything, made the world and everything in it, and he saw it. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, and he said, it's good. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Nature, creation, backs up the fact that there is a God. God's not telling us not to love the things that he created. He's not talking about the physical world, but when he's talking about don't love the world, and what we mean by worldliness is that it's an attachment to the outward. It's an attachment to the things that are going to someday pass away. Anything that the devil would try to use to distract us from our spiritual living. And that's in direct opposition to a love for the eternal, a love for the truth, a love for the, the holy things, the things that God would have us focus our attention on. In fact, turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. These two things are in direct opposition to each other, a love for God and a love for the world. And we cannot have both at the same time. You are either going to love God or you're going to love the world. There is no middle ground. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2 makes that very clear. And this is another command, by the way. He says, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. 
one of those two things is going to have our attention. It's either going to be the world or God. And it's only going to come at the expulsion of the other. One of them is going to be expelled from your life. If you love the world, it pushes God out. If you love God, it's going to push the world out. One of them is going to be pushed out of our life. You don't have to turn over there, but in Matthew chapter 6, we, we preached on this a few weeks ago on Sunday nights in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, in verse 24, the Bible says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will love the one and hate the other, or he will cling, uh, he will, I'm sorry, he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't serve both. You can't serve God and the world. You have to make that choice. If you've been reading the book on soul winning by Charles Spurgeon, then you'll know that the very first chapter talks a whole lot about the fruits that should be evident in the life of a Christian. He mentions in several different ways that there is no ch change uh, that if there is no change in a life, and if there is a strong desire to follow after the things of the world, then the salvation is highly questionable. Now, only you and God can know whether or not you're really saved, but if there's no evidence of that, and if your desire is not toward the things of God and toward the things of the world instead, then your, your salvation is questionable. He mentions over and over, I doubt if you really even got saved if your desire is not toward the things of God. Now, obviously, a Christian can backslide. A Christian can, can lose their focus on what's the most important, and they can move away from God. But if there's no coming back to him, Charles Spurgeon said over and over in that book, I question whether or not they really got saved in the first place, because a Christian is going to be a Christian, and it's going to be evident in the way that they live. Someone who belongs to Jesus Christ should not be worldly. We should not want to follow the fashions and the styles of the world. We should not want to follow the dress and the behavior of the world. We should not want to mirror the things that we see portrayed on television. No, beloved, God calls us to be different. In fact, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter makes that point very clear. And obviously... Um, James talks about it a lot. We mentioned it this morning. Peter also mentions the fact that we're going to be tried for our faith. Now, we in America, let's be honest, don't know what it's like to be tried for our faith. But to be a Christian is getting more and more difficult in, in this country today. To live as a Christian, I should say. There's a lot of people who claim to be a Christian who you can never tell the difference between them and the rest of the world. But the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9... But ye are a chosen generation. Peter's writing this to the saved. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, that doesn't mean we have to be weird for the sake of being different. We don't have to try to be odd. We simply have to have a love for Jesus Christ that is so much stronger than a love for the world. And if that's the case, it's going to make us peculiar. We are going to stand out. But we should. We're Christians. There ought to be something different about our lives. And that's the point that Peter's making here. You ought to be representing the one that called you out of darkness and into light. And if you're not doing that, then are you really saved in the first place? Because that's what a Christian does. We have to be saved. From, we, we've been saved from those things. Why would we want to keep following and imitating them? We, why would we want to follow those who are running quickly toward hell? But that's exactly what the world is. 
They are opposed to everything godly. They are opposed to anything that has to do with spirituality. They are opposed to the Bible. Why would we follow them? We should have a desire to look and talk and act and think and behave and witness like a Christian. We've been specifically commanded to love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. And that's going to be the mindset of a true Christian, a true follower of Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do this morning is look a little bit deeper into this passage and help us realize the danger of falling into this trap of worldliness. Turn back over to 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to look at this passage this morning. But before we do that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you. Give me thank you so much for how good you are to us. Thank you for the word of God being so plain. And I know it's not easy to live sometimes as a Christian, but it's what's required of us. It's what our desire should be. And so, God, I pray for those of us who may have lost that desire to go all out for you, those of us who may have lost that desire to love you with all of our hearts, that we'd get that back. And God, I pray that you'd help us as we look at this passage this morning, that we open our eyes to the dangers of falling into worldliness. And God, I pray that you'd help us to make the changes that are necessary in our lives that need to be made if you speak to our hearts about these things this morning, and we pray that you will. Thank you for what you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing I want you to see about the danger of falling into this trap of worldliness is the love of the world. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And the first thing I see in that is that it's a lack of love for God. Why does somebody love the world? It's because of a lack of love for God. I mentioned it already. It's a lack of that love for holiness. It's a lack of love for righteousness. It's a lack of love for godliness. But all of those things come down to a lack of love for God. It's impossible to fully love God and hang on to the world. The commentator Matthew Henry said it this way, The heart of man is narrow and cannot contain both loves. The world draws down the heart from God, and so the more love of the world prevails, the more the love of God dwindles and decays. It cannot get any more clear than how it's stated here in this passage. If a man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, that doesn't mean that God stops loving us. It doesn't mean that God's love is no longer available to us. It's no longer in our hearts. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that we have lost our love for God. A love of the world is a lack of love for God. We're presented with two choices in life, love misplaced or love rightly placed. Love misplaced is a love for the world. Love rightly placed is a love for God and for the things of God. You have your choice between the two of those things. You have your choice between whether or not you're going to love God or whether or not you're going to love the world. That's the choice, and every single one of us has to make that choice, and there is no in-between. Well, I, I love God, but boy, this stuff, this is really drawing to me. I, I'm really attracted to these things, and boy, I, I don't want to be different. I, I, wanna, I don't want to have to stand out. I mean, I don't want people to think I'm Amish or something. And, but that's what happens when we're a Christian. If that's the case, and people look at us as weird, then so be it. We should be different. It doesn't mean, like I said, that we have to be weird just for the sake of being different. There are people who fit into that category. Well, I'm a Christian. I'm peculiar, so I'm going to dress like I came out of the 1920s. It doesn't mean that you have to do those kind of things, but we should be different. When somebody looks at you, can they tell that you're a Christian? 
Can they tell that there's something different about you? If they can't tell the difference in your life and somebody else's, then there's a good indication that you are living as a worldly Christian. People ought to be able to look at you and say, there's something different about you. What do you have that I don't? That's what a testimony is. That's living as a testimony for Jesus Christ. Do the things that you say back up the fact that you're a Christian? Does the way that, you're, the way that you dress back up that you're a Christian? Does the things that you watch and talk about back up that you're a Christian? They should. Because otherwise, it's worldliness, and that's who we're following. We are either going to imitate the world, or we're going to imitate Christ. And when we imitate Christ, people will notice the difference. The easiest way to trap a monkey in Africa, I'm told, is to put a coconut in a cage or some heavy object that they really want and to drill a hole in that cage that's just big enough for that monkey to get his hand through there, but not big enough for him to get the coconut out. And they say that a monkey will reach into that cage and grab onto that coconut, and when he starts to pull it out, he'll realize that his hand and the coconut cannot fit out at the same time. But you know what that monkey will do? He will not let go of that coconut because that's his coconut once he touched it. And they say that the hunters can just go up and literally just take a net and wrap it around that monkey because they will not let go of that thing. And that's how they trap monkeys. They don't have to, you know, use a, a, like a bear trap where it clamps onto their leg or something like that. It's that monkey's desire for greed. That monkey's desire for something that he wants so bad that he's not willing to let it go. And you know what? That's the way that a lot of Christians are living with this world. I want that thing so bad that I'm willing to sacrifice my holiness. I'm willing to sacrifice my righteousness. I'm willing to give up godliness so that I can have this thing. You think about how foolish it is for that monkey to hold on to a coconut and give his life for a coconut. And yet so many Christians are doing the same thing for worldliness. And God must be looking down from heaven thinking, how foolish. Don't you realize that that's going to pass away someday? Don't you realize that that counts for nothing? Let it go. Let it go. Don't fall into the trap of worldliness and lose your Christianity and lose your spirituality. When we set our sights and our minds on worldly things, we become so blinded by those pursuits that we lose our love for God in the process. The love of God and the love for earthly things are not compatible with each other. I'm going to drive this point home to you today, but you're either going to love God or you're going to love the world. You cannot have it both ways. If you give place to the love of the world and the love of God, the Bible says very plainly, cannot dwell in you. If you don't have this love, then you can have no peace. You can have no holiness. You can have no righteousness. See, a love of the world comes from a lack of love for God, but it also comes from a lack of love for good. The world is getting to be a less and less moral place. It used to be that everybody growing up, whether they were saved or not, whether they wanted to or not, went to church. And they at least had a Bible. They at least read it at the dinner table. They at least went to church once a week. They at least had some knowledge of who Jesus was. They might not have been Christians, but they were moral. And they, they, they believed that the Bible was the word of God and, and all of these other things. And we won't take the time this morning, but the, the Bible lists in the New Testament several passages of, of, of just how far, how, how 
uh, depraved things that men will partake in are going to be as we draw closer to those last days. And it shows such a disregard for morality, a disregard for goodness, a disregard for God, and that ought not to characterize the life of a Christian. The Bible says in Th Psalm 37, For delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. The French philosopher Alex de Tocqueville, he came to America in the early years of our country, uh, late, late 1700s, early 1800s, because he had heard that America was establishing this wonderful dis democracy, this wonderful uh, democratic republic, and he wanted to see what are they doing that makes this work. Obviously, France had gone through a revolution in 1786. They had gone through the same, same type of thing that America went through. I don't call it uh, an American revolution. I call it an American war for independence because that's what it was. France went through the French Revolution, and theirs was bloody. They overthrew leaders after leaders after leaders. People were in prison for years, and, and it was just a very godless thing that they were doing. And so Alex de Tocqueville came to America to try to observe, and he was here for a couple years, and he wrote lots of different things down and great observations about America. But what, one of the things that stands out the most about what Alex de Tocqueville said in summing up basically everything about America is he said this, America is great because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. And boys, words are almost prophetic because we're seeing that exact same thing played out in this country today. America is losing its greatness in the world because it's losing its goodness, it's losing its morality, it's losing its desire to live and to please God. See, one of the pitfalls of worldliness is the love of the world, but secondly, what we see is the luster of the world. And we look back in 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 16, the Bible says this, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Billy Graham said the devil will always have a ship ready when a man wants to sail away from God. And boy, that's so true. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. There's a great affinity for and a strong alliance between the world and our flesh. The world is always ready to satisfy our flesh. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 5, and Paul takes a lot of time in Romans, basically chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, to talk to us about our flesh. Our flesh is that old man, the person that we were before we accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, the person that we were before we became a new man. That's our flesh. That's the old man. That's what we fight against every day. That's the one that's talking to you, telling you to do those things that you should not be doing. The spirit, the new man, is the one that talks to us and telling us, don't do those things. It's like the, you know, the, the cartoon where you have the picture of the, the guy dressed in white on your shoulder on one side and the guy dressed in a devil uniform with a pitchfork on the other side, and they're, they're both yelling in your ear. That's the fight between the flesh and the spirit. The flesh is, is, is our old nature. It's telling us, do this, do this, do this. Do everything you can to, to, to hurt God. Do everything you can to move away from him. It's not worth it. Then the Spirit comes back and says, no, it is worth it. Keep serving, keep loving, keep doing what God wants you to do. The Bible says, Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 5, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. In other words, to follow after the world, to love the things of the world is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity 
against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. It doesn't mean that they don't please God. It doesn't say that they, that, that, that just, well, when you're living in the flesh, then God's not pleased by those things. No, they that live in the flesh cannot please God. In other words, when we follow after worldliness, when we feed that flesh, then we are not living for God, the way that he wants us to live for him. Lust is that desire that's not being held in wise and safe control. The lust of the flesh is a desire to do whatever the flesh desires to do. That flesh, that old man, that person that we used to be before we got saved. The Bible talks about that in Galatians chapter 2. Why would you go back to the weak and beggarly elements wherein you desire to be in bondage? You've been saved from all of those things. The world had its control over you. It told you to do whatever it wanted you to do, and you did it. But you're saved from those things, and you were freed from the bondage of sin. Why would you want to, after you've been freed from the bondage of sin, go back into that bondage? It's just like, we used this illustration before, but it's just like somebody who's in prison that, that serves out their sentence, and they get freed from prison, and they walk out the doors, and they say, ah, freedom, this is great. All right, let's go back in. Who in their right mind is going to do that? No, once you taste freedom, you say, boy, I don't want nothing to do with that place again. Right? I don't want, I, you're not going to take me back to prison. I'm going to live on the straight and narrow. No, there's nothing that makes me want to go back to that. And yet so many Christians, they live in that bondage to sin, and Christ sets them free. They get saved, and they say, wow, freedom. I kind of liked what was back there. Let me go back into bondage. Let, let, let me put those chains back on. Why would you do that? That's a, that's a question that Paul asked in Galatians chapter 2. Why would you want to go back to those weak and beggarly elements wherein ye desire to be in bondage? But that's what living after the flesh is. That's what feeding the flesh is. It's going back to the old person that we used to be before we were saved. Does the death of Jesus Christ on the cross mean nothing to you? Does the fact that he saved you from those things mean nothing to you? It's our sins that made him go to the cross, and yet we go right back to those things. That's what feeding the flesh is all about. And Paul says that, uh, or John says that, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh is not of the Father. It's of the world. Our flesh has no desire to please God, and following after the world is only going to move us closer to who we used to be, not closer to who we should be trying to become. He talks about the feeding of the flesh. He says the lust of the flesh, but then he also talks about the lust of the eyes, the entertainment of the eyes. The eyes are delighted with treasures, riches, and, and, and rich possessions that can be craved by the extravagant eye. We have that desire. This is the lust of covetousness, and it doesn't mean that we can't want or have the nicer things, but when it's the great and leading cause of our life, then that's when it takes over and becomes that covetousness. When we seek those things without any connection to Christ or holiness or, or eternity, it becomes the lust of the eyes. The devil has become a master at feeding our flesh through entertainment. You see, it's so important what you watch on television. It's so important what you spend your time looking at online. It's so important that those things are not feeding our flesh, but feeding our spirit. 
You ought not to be watching the trash that's on television. And I don't know what the percentage of trash on the television is anymore. I don't hardly watch any of it anyway. But I, I bet it's 95, 98% of everything that's on there is just junk. Well, how do you know what the trash on the television is? You know what the trash on the television is. If you're saved, then when you're sitting there watching it, the Holy Spirit is pricking your heart saying, you shouldn't be looking at that. You shouldn't be looking at that. You know that that's not right. You ought to change that. And yet, well, we can, we can watch it a little bit longer. And you know what happens? Your conscience gets seared to the point where it doesn't bother you anymore. You grieve the Holy Spirit who's living in your life to the place where he doesn't even, you can't even hear him speaking to you anymore. But I'll tell you what, if you get a desire in your heart to live for God and you really mean it, and you sit down to watch those things, the Holy Spirit will say, you know that's not right. How do you know what the trash is? Well, number one, they, they rate the trash for you most of the time. They tell you what's trash. But on top of that, the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart and they says, that's trash. Don't watch it. And yet the devil says, ah, just a little longer. You want to see how this ends, don't you? You want to see what happens, don't you? Well, now you've made it through one episode. Now they've got 20 more to whole, finish the whole season. Now, just watch the rest of it. Well, okay, I'll watch the rest of it. And that's how, we, that's how our conscience becomes seared. That's how we grieve the Holy Spirit of God through the entertainment of the eyes. If you can watch 95% of what's on TV without being affected, then you're either not saved or you've so grieved the Holy Spirit in your life that you cannot hear him telling you to turn it away, turn it off. A Christian that's tender-hearted toward God and the things of God and his relationship with God is not trying to see what he can watch and technically get away with. He's trying to see what can I, what can I do to draw me closer to God? What can I put out of my life that's going to help draw me closer to God? And I'm not trying to say that everything that's on television is bad. There are some things that are just fine. For the most part, ball games are okay. For the most part, well, ball games are okay. That's about it anymore. But the thing is, if we can watch those things and not be affected by them, I would question whether or not you're really saved. But if you are and you know that you're saved and you're not affected by those things, then that worldliness has taken such a hold in your heart, the entertainment of the eyes has grabbed you so tightly around the neck that you can't even breathe spiritually. And you ought to be concerned about that. The devil is looking for anything that might hinder our relationship with God. And we ought to be looking for the same thing so that we can get it out. How much time do you spend on those things, watching the entertainment of the world versus spending time in the Word of God? How much time do you spend on those things versus on your knees in prayer? You see what I mean about what we allow into our eyes? The, uh, Jeremiah in Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 51 says, Mine eye affecteth my heart. Mine eye affecteth my heart. The Bible says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Oh, I don't know where that came from. I'll tell you where it came from. It came out of your heart. Because whatever is in your heart is eventually going to overflow into your mouth. And when your heart is so filled with the things of God that you cannot help but talk about the things of God, when your heart is so filled with the goodness of God and the salvation that he's given you that you cannot help but talk about the goodness of God and the salvation that he's given you, 
That's when you know you're moving in the right direction. But when your mouth is so filled with the things of the world, because your heart is so filled with the things of the world, then that's a good indication that worldliness has taken over in your life and something needs to change. He says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and he talks about the pride of life. A worldly mind craves all of the grandeur and power, thirsts after honor and applause. That's the part of our life that just craves the attention of men. I'm not going to do it if I'm not going to get recognized for it. I'm not going to serve God unless people are going to recognize me. So many people fall into that trap. In fact, turn over to Proverbs chapter 6. Many people who would never consider doing horrible things like murder or adultery or stealing fall into pride, and God denounces that sin in so many verses and often in harsher tones than he does with all those other things. You see, it's because pride is what eventually leads us to all of those other sins. That's the root so many times of all of the other things that go wrong in our lives. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 18, pride goeth before destruction and on haughty spirit before the fall. Better it is to be of an humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. An ancient Indonesian parable tells about a turtle that flew into the air by biting hard onto a stick that was carried by two geese. He wanted to fly. He had that desire to fly, and so he came up with this plan. Well, if I bite onto this stick and two geese carry it, then I can fly. And the geese said, hey, that's fine with us. Grab a stick, and we'll grab it on each end, and you can fly. And so he got up into the air, and here this turtle was soaring above everything. And he was enjoying himself, having a great time, until he started hearing people on the ground that were praising the geese for being so clever. And the turtle felt that he was the one that deserved all of that attention and praise. So he opened his mouth and he shouted, this was my idea. And obviously, you know what happened to the turtle. He let go of the stick. Pride is a destructive force that robs us of life. See, the love of the world is a pitfall. The luster of the world is a pitfall. And lastly, I want you to see this back over in 1 John chapter 2. Is the loss of the world. The world is going to pass away. The Bible says, and the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The sad reality is that banking on the world is a bad investment. And yet so many Christians put all of their money into that bank and they keep putting it in and they keep putting it in and they keep putting it in and they're going to get a bad return on their investment. You see, sure, it may be fun for a while. It may, be, uh, it may seem like following the world is the way to go, but ultimately the things that make this world the enemy of God is all going to be wiped away. The lust itself, the pleasures are just going to utterly decay, the Bible says. And that desire to pursue the things of the world is going to cease. Then what becomes of all the, the pomp and the pleasure and all of those things that now lie moldering in the grave? Look. How many people have come to the end of your life, their life and they said, this was worthless. I spent my entire life following after things that don't matter because I don't even want them anymore. And it's going to be even worse when we stand before God. And we find out that the things that we gave our lives to all counted for nothing. 
We have to look no farther than the great pyramids of Egypt to see that the wealth and the vanity comes to nothing. I don't know if you've read any of these stories about those things, but as hard as you may try, you cannot take it with you when you go. You go look at the things that some of those pharaohs had in their, in their tombs with them there in the pyramids, the wealth and the power and the prestige of the pharaohs who led the very picture of the world, Egypt, found that it all passes away. And you might be buried with your wealth and you might be buried with all the servants that you need, but it comes to nothing just as God said. Because you know what? Today, those pharaohs are not enjoying all the wealth that they amassed. Somebody else is. Most of them in museums where people can go by and look at all the things that they used to have. That counts for nothing for them. And they find out that there comes a day of reckoning when you throw all your eggs in the basket of the world. We can't take it with us, but we can send it on ahead. The world's going to pass away. But we see, secondly, the promise to the winner. The first part of that verse is the consequence of following the world. The second part of that verse is the reward for not following the world. It's all about where you place your desire. If you put it in the world, you're going to be sorely disappointed. And yet that's what so many Christians do. And one day we're going to stand before God. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians that when we stand before him, all of our works are going to be tried by what? Fire. And everything that was wood, hay, stubble, it's all going to be burned up. You know what the wood and the hay and the stubble is? Houses, cars, money, fashion, things. How many people are just hoarding things, desiring things? Do you know what's going to last? The gold, the silver, the precious stones. Do you know what happens to those things when they go through the fire? Don't burn up. They get more pure. What is that gold, silver, and precious stones? I'll tell you what. It's the time that we spend on our knees before God. It's the souls that we witness to tell about Jesus Christ. It's the souls that we win for Jesus Christ. It's the time that we spend serving Jesus Christ. Those are the things that are going to last. Worldliness is going to pass away. Everything in the world is going to pass away. Why would you want to follow something that you know is never going to last? Well, you know, I just we can't see the end from the beginning. You know how it is. God sees the big picture. We can only see one step at a time. But you know what? God gives us the end of the story already. The world is going to pass away and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. You know how the story ends. Why would you want to follow after the things that are not going to last? We need to follow after the things that will last. Serving Christ, living like a Christian, acting like a Christian, talking like a Christian, looking like a Christian. That's what we ought to be doing in our lives. Those are the things that are going to last. You put your desire in God and in his word and in holiness, that's something that's going to last for an eternity. We build our happiness on a foundation that is not secure. It's going to pass away. But on the other hand, if you build, your, if you build on a foundation that's going to last forever, it'll never pass away. Is trading the pleasures of the world for the things of God always the fun route? Not necessarily. Is it always easy to be different from the world? Not really. It gets easier the more that you do it. 
So many people, well, I can't give that up. I mean, I've been doing that for years and years and years. I can't, I can't stop doing that. Oh, I, can't start, I can't start dressing differently. I can't start acting differently. I can't, I can't stop pursuing these things. I've been doing that for years. Try it. The more you do it, the easier it gets to be a Christian instead of just acting like one. The more you please God by doing those things and the closer you're drawn in your relationship to him because of it, certainly it's not that hard. There's a legend that's been passed down through the centuries. A band of nomads were traveling, obviously, and they were planning to retire for the evening, and suddenly this angelic being showed up in front of them. And they said, wow, you know, they're looking at each other, and this, this is, and, and it's, it's an angel. And the angel came up to them and Gave them pretty clear but surprising instructions. He said, gather as many pebbles as you can and put them in your saddlebags. And tomorrow about this time, you'll be both happy and sad. And the angelic being disappeared. And they started looking at each other and they said, what a waste. We saw this angel and that's what he tells us to do? Well, that's what he said. So they each grabbed a little handful of pebbles and they put it in their saddlebags and they kind of put it out of their mind. And they traveled the next day for about a day, and they got to the place where they were going to stop for that night, and they began to unpack their things, and one of them went to the saddlebags and found that all of those pebbles that they had gathered the night before had turned into diamonds. And just like the angel said, they were both happy and sad. They were thrilled that all of those pebbles that they had gathered had turned into diamonds, but then they were so sad that they hadn't gathered more of them. Oh, if we had only taken as many pebbles as we could fit in our bags, we'd be wealthy beyond our imaginations. And you know, the things of God are a lot like those pebbles. We only do a few things for God because, well, it's just pebbles. They don't count for anything. But someday we're going to stand before God and we're going to be both happy and sad. We're going to be happy that we had done those few things for God, but we're going to be so sad that we didn't do more. We're going to be so sad that we didn't give our lives to him. We're going to be so sad in the times and the areas that we followed after worldliness. We're going to be so sad for the areas that we could have done better for God and we didn't. We're going to be so sad that we could have witnessed for Christ when we didn't. We're going to be so sad that we could have lived and acted and looked like a Christian and we didn't because the world got in front of us and we were so focused on trying to be cool or so focused on trying to fit in or so focused on whatever it is that we focus that draws us away after worldliness that we had so many opportunities to have things that could have turned into diamonds and yet we have so few how many things are you doing for christ down here on this earth falling into the trap of loving the world is a terrible mistake that so many people are falling into a huge mistake for Christians considering the end of the world, considering the destruction that's going to come to the world. But as Christians, we have to guard our hearts and our minds and keep from getting involved in the things of the world. And I can promise you, I can promise you that one day you'll be so glad you did. Love not the world. The more we love God, the less we're going to love the world. And vice versa. The more we love the world, the less we're going to love God. Can't have it both ways. Got to make a decision this morning. Are you going to sell out for God? Or are you going to sell out to the world? Because that's the only two choices.
There is no half-God, half-world option. It's either all God and victory or all the world and destruction. That's the choice that you have to make this morning. Let's pray. Father, we love you again. We thank you so much for how good you are to us. God, the choice is clear. We're either going to follow you and love you or we're going to follow the world and love it. Pray that each one of us would make that decision this morning. Perhaps something was said, a verse was read that pricked our hearts about our lack of love for you. God, I pray that you would help us to get those things right this morning. I know the way the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. It might not even be in something that I said. It might be in something that the Holy Spirit said to a heart. You need to get that out. You know you need to get it out of your life. You know you need to stop doing that. You know you need to start doing this. Holy Spirit works in mysterious ways. But God, I pray that he would do his work this morning. That our hearts will be convicted. That we determine that our minds will be changed. If a decision does need to be made, God, I pray that we would have the courage to get out of our seats this morning and come down to an old-fashioned altar and get those things right with you. Well, thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, stand at your seats with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. As the piano plays, the invitation is open and you can come. If God's spoken to your heart and you need to get some things right, don't wait. Don't wait. Get those things right with him this morning.